Hey, and welcome to the Six Minute Mile podcast. I'm David Lavalley, and today we are fired up to take a deep dive into the science behind exercise and brain development. Our guest today is Dr. Arash Javanbach, a professor of psychiatry and behavioral neurosciences at Wayne State University. He explains to us how exercise can reduce not only the mental symptoms of stress, but also the physiological ones as well. Even as we age, we can grow brain cells by exercising, particularly in the hippocampus, which controls human learning and memory. That stuff was interesting, but we found it even more compelling when Dr. Javenbach explained his thesis that most humans are no longer living the lives we were designed to live. Most of us are too sedentary and don't pursue the type of physical movements our bodies are capable of, like running and being outdoors. As he puts it, no amount of medication can make a dog happy if it's confined to a crate 24 hours a day. Dr. Javenbach even thinks we need more fear in our lives, which our ancestors lived with every day. We hope you enjoy this crash course into the relationship between our minds and our bodies. Enjoy, and we'll see you out there. Well, good. Well, we'd love to jump in. And uh, again, thanks for making time for us. And I'd love to hear how you first came to focus some of your research on this area, that intersection uh, between exercise and uh, mental health and happiness and uh, overcoming trauma. But how did you first come on to that topic? I personally was not a very active person until like five or six years ago when I was not raised with the culture of exercise. When someone dragged me to a boxing gym and then I was like, I thought this is such a stupid thing to just go there and hit the bag. Why would you do this? I remember it was a cold January snowy day and I was like, okay, he's a dear friend and uh, let's go. And I got hooked up and I, I really felt good and continued on. So there's some background there. But then we had a... When I joined Wayne State University in 2015, one of the projects I picked up, because my expertise is in anxiety, stress, and trauma, uh, I knew there are refugees here from Syria and Iraq, and the question was, what is the impact of exposure to war trauma in these adults and children? So we started a large project looking at the impact of war trauma in refugees, and uh, well, we had a lot of important and interesting data showing high impact, high uh, rates of anxiety, depression, separation anxiety in kids, post-traumatic stress disorder. Well, so it was good for science, but I was, as a clinician, I was feeling that we are not doing much for them and our hands were tied because in general, trauma experts are lacking in general, even for the American population, let alone people who are familiar with the culture and language who could help the refugees. And while I was struggling with this uh, question, I, uh, so CNN came in and did a report on our work and, uh, one of the faculty at art school saw the report and came and said, hey, we do art therapy. Why don't you to use our skills here for the kids and the families? And then right then I got a, a PhD student, Lana, who was and is a dancer and was very much interested in dance and movement therapies. I thought, let's try it. Let's do it and do the research. They presented some research evidence uh, about how these interventions had helped other groups of patients and other groups of mental uh, conditions. And we thought, let's try it. Theoretically, it makes sense that such interventions can help. 
they're in a group setting, there is a kind of a bonding relationship, which is actually aspect of a lot of other kinds of exercises. And then expressing emotions through the body as well as the physical activity component. We all know we have evidence to think this might work. So we basically started with uh, all volunteer work. We would bring a mother and a child refugee to uh, the, to the clinic, we had divided a big conference room into two spaces. On one side, mothers were doing uh, mindful yoga. On one side, kids were doing dance and movement therapy. In the other floor, they were doing uh, uh, art therapy. And we measured the impact. And we find out, we found out there is an impact. There's a reduction in the anxiety level. Mm -hmm. There's a reduction, especially in kids in separation anxiety, which was a big problem for these refugee kids because... Well, understandably so, when you come from a very dangerous environment, you learn to stay with your parents and not leave them. But now uh -huh. in the safe environment, it was hard for them because they couldn't go to school. So that's how we started this whole process and then started expanding and researching other people's works and looking at other evidence about how exercise may be uh, helping with mental illness. And, and you're a medical doctor and psychiatrist by training, correct? That's true. I'm a psychiatrist. Well, you would say I'm a psychiatrist and neuroscientist as a, like, as a clinician, medical doctor, I do psychiatric work and treatment. And on the neuroscience side, I do research of the brain. Basically, I'm specialized in anxiety, stress, trauma, anything from neurobiology, brain imaging, genetics, inflammation, and then some interventions that we are advancing basically ways uh, we are treating uh, these conditions. So I would imagine once you started to see these practical results with, with some of these uh, refugees that you were working with, I would imagine the academic part of your brain would, would kick in and say, okay, well, that's interesting. I believe these results, but, but why is that? And then dive into the science behind it. That's true. And it was actually a combination of both because we had some, uh, I knew from previous research that different forms of exercise have shown to be effective. We had some basically uh, theoretical understanding and foundation for, okay, so these are, so any kind of uh, cardio activity or body focused uh, interventions can through these pathways and mechanisms help the brain, help the sympathetic nervous system, help the body, help with the pain. And then knowing that um, there's also other components in it, like let's say dance and movement therapy, expression through the expression of emotions mm -hmm. through the body without directly addressing them. As well, there was a component of uh, the, like a group cohesion and familiarity and support. And uh, so, so we had these ideas that it probably will work. So, and that is how usually you do the research, right? You you just don't go randomly try something. You should have some hypothetical basis for why it should work. And then when you find the more solid evidence, yeah, as you said, you, then you go and look for more evidence uh, and dive into the mechanisms. Like some of a little bit of what we did was looking at the inflammatory markers and how infl inflammation might change. But there's a ton of other research, both in animal and human studies about uh, how physical activity may change different aspects of brain and behavior and the body. Well, and I'm, I'm interested in that. Um, I've read some of your stuff on inflammation and it seems as if inflammation is bad for a lot of reasons, right? Um, so how does that affect, I, don't, I think of that more as physiological rather than mental. 
So, but, but how does that affect somebody's psychiatric well-being to have increased levels of inflammation in the body? And that's a very good question you raise. And I think it might be interesting to your audience to delve into this discussion a little bit more before we get to the inflammation, even yeah. the brain and the body and the mind and the body. So traditionally, we have had the tendency to split these concepts. Look at mind and brain as two separate entities. Look at brain and the body as two separate entities, right? Like even when we say, oh, exercise is going to help with your cardiovascular and muscle and joint systems this way and now with your brain in this way, right? As Mm -hmm. if we are totally separate and apart from each other. But it's important to know we make these divisions and categorizations because it's hard for us to understand a complex system as a whole. That's why we divide them. Example I can use, you can say my right arm and hand are like separate, like to see them as a separate element of the body and research my arm separately. But the way I move my arm can affect the other arm and can affect my chest muscles and can Mm -hmm. affect my back and can affect my legs. So when it comes to the brain, brain has its claws in every millimeter of the body in the form of neurons and in the form of uh, hormones, which uh, basically impact how other parts of the body work. Examples. Well, and we are talking about when we talk about anxiety and fear and a lot of other emotions, basically we have this part in the brain called amygdala, which is an emotion salient center. Its job is to anytime you see a cue to say, should I run away from this cue? Should I attack it? Should I eat it? Or should I have sex with it? And basically we're very primal animal brain, which is not very different between myself and a rat and a mouse. We research those animals to understand about the human brain. So when this part of the brain goes off with, let's say, anxiety and fear, then it creates a cascade of events that affects the whole body in the brain. For instance, it leads to changes in the preparedness of the muscular system. It leads to uh, acceleration of activation in the sympathetic nervous system, what we call the fight and flight. What does that do? The adrenaline and norepinephrine uh, releasing the whole body and then stress hormones such as cortisol as well as the um, uh, inflammatory cascades and pathways and all of which were designed primarily to basically protect this body because what was the uh, purpose of fear? Purpose of fear is not that before I came to this podcast, I was nervous about, oh, I, should, I might mess it up, so I should be nervous and my heart's pounding. It's not helping. The purpose was that 8,000 years ago, if you and I were in, this, uh, in a, like a social setting and you didn't like me, chances are high, one of us would be dead in a matter of minutes. So the body prepares itself. That's why the heart is pounding, right? So all these changes in this cascade that happen when we are nervous and anxious are to prepare us for fight and flight. While in the normal modern life, those are not very helpful. Uh, so it, that was a long answer to get to the inflammation. So inflammation. No, is- it's great background. Yeah. Yeah, and inflammation is part of this whole process to basically prepare the body for that very stressful short mo- moment, and also prepare us for to let's say repair wounds and and, and repair damages that that can be caused to the body. But in long run, that can be dangerous and detrimental. It can lead to shrinkage in different areas of the brain. Hmm. It can lead to, uh, basically, it may be toxic to 
multiple functions. It could be it could uh, harm the cardiovascular system, and in, in general, we have evidence that inflammation might play a role in depression as well as also post-traumatic stress disorder. We are researching inflammatory pathways in the, cre in the development of these illnesses. And of course, we all have heard about the role of inflammation, in, let's say in rheumatological conditions and a lot mm -hmm. of other medical situations, including diabetes. And these all are intertwined. For instance, a higher stress, the higher, let's say, trauma, post-traumatic stress disorder can increase the chance of diabetes, cardiovascular disease, obesity, pain. So they're all linked going back to that one system rather than different elements of the whole human system. Understood. So as an athlete, are there times, it strikes me there may be times you want to conjure up that fight or flight. So um, is, are there ways that, so, I mean, you, you do boxing as a workout. I don't know if you actually spar with other people, um, but uh, your your nose looks relatively straight. You probably haven't had a broken, haven't suffered a broken a nose. Yet. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but it's nice and straight. But uh, so, uh, as an athlete, I mean, I've seen athletes, uh, you know, winter sports sports stuff snow down the back of their shirt to to get themselves sort of angry mm -hmm. and agitated. And it, it, is that helpful for humans to try to to try to create that elevated flight or fight type of emotional response? It's a very, very good question. So that gets us to the answer of uh, that we have a term called the optimal arousal window. Yes, that's what I was let's wondering say, about. Yeah, let's say I'm going to an exam. If I'm a little bit too bored and not at all anxious, I will not be functioning optimally. And if I'm too anxious, I will be so basically this fear circuitry bypasses my cognitive system and I won't be able to find, perform well. But if I'm a little, just a little bit anxious, like before this conversation, if I was not at all anxious, I'd be a little bit bored and I wouldn't try hard enough to answer your questions with all the data. <laughs> right. But a little bit of anxiety would bring my arousal level to the state that I could answer the questions better. When it comes to uh, performing athletes, uh, well, a big chunk is the physical activity component. And we talked about how the, uh, uh, how activating this whole sympathetic, especially the sympathetic nervous system aspect, prepares the body for fight and flight. What is, and fight and flight was supposed to be something very physical. So that's, its job is to bring us to the optimal performance. And how does that happen? You know, sympathetic nervous system when it's hyperactivated, blood flow to the muscles increases, attention and awareness goes up, pupils are more dilated to get all the light and all the vision you can get, brain processing increases, like there have been times probably that all of us have been very scared and events feel to move, be moving very slow. Things feel, I even still remember what well, the first time I had a car accident, Ooh. I remember that it was like as if it's slow motion, the car, the, the other uh, 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 vehicles coming towards me. So in this sense, we are faster, we are more prepared. And then of course, less blood goes, let's say to the gastrointestinal system which is a system that we don't need at the moment. Uh, so yes, in that sense, increasing the arousal, a bored athlete will not do great. So increasing the physical arousal uh, can be something very helpful. And, and part of it, you even witness it in your body. As to your question about sparring, I have done some mid-practice and a little bit of sparring. I've, I've never uh, been in a fight, uh, so I mostly hit the back. Uh, but... Uh, 
like my my heart rate is like well, somewhere between 140 and 180. So that wow. means that this whole system is on higher level of activity. Yeah. And what I've um, read and understood is that uh, in that optimal arousal window, it's lower than you might expect. Whether it's you know a presentation at an academic conference or um, or a sports match. I don't know. I've always been told on a scale of one to 10, you kind of want to be at a three or four. You don't want to be really, really amped up. Uh, is that, is that roughly accurate? It's a little bit difficult to measure that because these are very subjective, right? Sure. Because in general, I don't have a, I mean, we have devices, we have technologies. Let's say I, I can put a couple of wires on your fingers and look at the level of synthetic activity based on the level of moisture of your skin hmm. and give a number, but that number still is very, uh, individually different. So I should compare your rise at, at, uh, to your baseline. Actually, it will be a good research study to see what is the optimal rise from the baseline of sympathetic activity for a person, for, for a performing athlete. But when it comes to, let's say, you asking me how much anxious you are, well, different people have uh, different uh, assessments and perceptions of their own anxiety. Maybe, uh, I mean, if I just wanted to come up with a number and make up a number, I would say probably a four is a good number. Okay. Uh, but then it may also depend on, because we have different levels of activity, different levels of the intensity of activities you need versus different levels of balance you need versus different levels of mental and cognitive involvement in the task. Well, let's say the exam that I perform versus where it's like totally nonverbal. I'm working on a piece of paper in my internal mind versus me and you having this conversation. It's a social context element added to it. Like if you just gave me the written answer questions and I have had to write them on a the paper versus now at the social context and theoretically add, then move it up to another level of, okay, now it's a physical activity. Is it a competition? Is it a, uh, one person aspect is it a fighting aspect is it a group aspects I could imagine level of arousal not only might be different at those different uh, uh, kinds of function but also differ throughout the time right right as right you are, as you are progressing through those uh, through those activities because if you are in a let's say uh, in a let's say 12 rounds of boxing uh, and I'm, again, I'm not a boxer disclaimer, so I may be totally wrong. Uh, there are times that you have to adjust the level of arousal and activity and intensity of activity to avoid exhaustion. Right, right, right. No, it's a sprint versus a marathon, right? You can't be exactly. at ultimate peak arousal for 26.2 miles. So it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, 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 very true. And so I think most of our listeners understand the basic concept. We, we, don't, we don't have to sell them on the idea that exercise makes you feel a little better, probably makes you feel as if your mind is a little clearer that day at work. But the part of your research that I've, I was fascinated by is that exercise can actually increase the production of brain cells. And I kind of go back to my middle school science teacher. And I think somebody told me in seventh grade that you, after a certain age, you actually cannot produce more brain cells. Uh, which is probably lead into why you shouldn't drink beer in high school. But anyway, mm -hmm. uh, because that'll destroy brain cells and you'll never have a chance to rebuild them, which I, so, but your research and others show that exercise and engaging in these healthy activities can actually promote, you know, the, the 
my understanding, certain molecules will actually help promote the growth of brain cells. Can you explain a little bit behind that? I'm, I'm sure I'm misrepresenting what your research and others is, but. Well, yes. Yeah, so, so the belief was at some point that the brain after initial development will not change. And uh, the cells are going to be the same cells. Even if we went with that theory, we have learned that uh, so each of these nerve cells in the brain have tens of thousands of connections with the other nerve cells. Okay. And those connections can change throughout the time. And those connections can increase and decrease. And the more of these connections are created in a lot of functionings, the better we will function and perform, understandably so. But there's also the knowledge that brain cells are created continuously in some parts of the brain. For instance, we have this area next to amygdala in our temporal lobe called hippocampus, which on a regular basis creates new cells. And these new cells, uh, and, and hippocampus, it's, it's, uh, let's uh, very briefly mention what hippocampus does. Yes, hippocampus, please. a lot of people have heard of it as the memory center. It's involved in creation of memories and learning, also cognition. It also is very much involved in emotion regulation, basically reducing the emotional intensity. The example, let's say I see a lion, my amygdala will fire up. And if just this amygdala unhinged or unleashed, I will be feeling all the terror and anxiety feelings that a person would have when they see a lion. But then I look around and I see there's bars between me and the lion and there are other people having fun and kids are having eating ice cream. So then there's a context. And this context tells me that I'm in a zoo. And the hippocampus is involved in context processing. When we see the context and hippocampus plus some other areas of the brain tell the amygdala, okay, slow down. We're good. We are safe. They inhibit amygdala fire, amygdala's firing. Same applies in some cortical regions in the frontal uh, brain areas, uh, which are involved in uh, regulation of emotions. And of course, uh, we tend to see them mostly as areas that help reduce uh, emotions, but they can also increase emotions through cognitive ways. For instance, if someone tells me, hey, this dog is bites, then I will be scared. So, and that's through so, cognitive knowledge. So, so hippocampus actually also, interestingly, majority of mental illnesses, when we look at the hippocampus in the brain, there is a shrinkage. So hippocampus is smaller as well. It is less functional. And how do we look at the function? We basically put the person in the scanner and give them a task. And as they perform the task, you can track the changes in the blood flow to different areas of the brain, hmm. which is an indicator of how active that area of the brain is. So let's say in my research and others, we can track how these different areas of the brain respond to tasks and increase their functioning. So hippocampal functioning in emotion regulation, as well as its structure and volume decreased in a lot of mental illness, including anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, schizophrenia, uh, and the evidence from exercise is that it, that it can increase the volume and the function of the hippocampus, which is good news for us. And the function is whether like in the brain imaging or the function is in terms of, uh, let's say, <clears throat> cognitive function, memory tests, and memory performance uh, studies. Uh, from the animal research and studies, people have found that this also, it, it's true in animals. And 
it's so we have this uh, the the ton of different molecule and molecules dancing around in the brain. One of them is called brain drive uh, neurotropic factor BDNF. So BDNF's function is basically triggering growth in the in, in the brain. And it seems like regular aerobic exercise increases BDNF level, and that's do we, do we know why? Oh, like what is the what is the brain rationale for doing that? Well, maybe maybe uh, it means that if you live a normal life and you get the normal level of activity and oxygen and stimulation, then the brain wants to be keep up with it uh, because because unfortunately so. I'm going to go on a derailment here if you allow me. So the Absolutely. way we look at, the way we look at activity now. We look at, the, at it from a civilized person's standpoint, where whose life is to drive to work, get drive-through food on our way, sit on it at a desk for a whole day, drive back home, drive through garbage food, and then on the couch uh, the, watching garbage TV. But the reality, I always say to understand the human brain and its emotions, you got to understand the context is evolved in. And this whole body and brain evolved, let's say 50,000 years ago, the functions, the day-to-day -day functions of you and I would be very, very different. Right. So that is normal. Like right. that right. is what right. this body and brain wants to be normal. That's the water for this fish. And now we have moved this fish to this new water, which is the new norm, but is a synthetic norm. It's, I always use an example of, uh, of course, besides the exercises, diet, and all of these other things, imagine you put a Labrador in a, in a crate 24-7 and shower them with a ton of food. Right. Like access, unlimited access to food, but, no, but very limited access to any kind of activity and stimulation. Because any sort of physical activity is good stimulation for body. It's also very good stimulation and challenge to the brain. So that's, I cannot have any antidepressant that will make that dog happy. Uh, because that yeah. dog is not living the life it has evolved to live. That dog is missing social interaction. That dog is overfed. That dog is missing physical activity. So same now comes back to, to the question you asked, is that because that is the normal way these things are supposed to work. Very interesting. So, so we're just getting, so we need a certain amount of that elemental human activity. It seems like it. And uh, why, do, why do we encourage people to do exercise? I mean, uh, in a normal life, in a, you never tell your, I don't know, the fish in the ocean to exercise. You never say, tell the deer to go exercise, but you have to take your dog for a walk. Why do we do that? Because we have created an artificially super safe super easily accessible food environment for all of us that we don't need to uh, be active. Otherwise, if you and I were living in the, in the woods, we had to, on a day-to-day -day basis, have some level of activity, some level of challenge, some level of pain, and some level of fear. This is, this is just a theory that I have. I, have no, I, I don't have enough of scientific evidence from literature to support this, but I think we even need a normal, regular dose of fear. 
part of our anxieties could be because we are not fearing the way we were designed. The fear circuitry is not stimulated the way we were supposed to be stimulated. And that's why we get all the, the fears and terrors. Uh, another example, when we experience anxiety, let's say I have a meeting. Well, let's say I, I'm gonna come back to the like example of the, this podcast. Imagine I have not had a lot of exposure to such interviews and I was, I was a right. little, I was nervous. Why would be my heart pounding so hard as if I am facing a lion? Well, logically and cognitively, know, we know that what is the worst outcome here? The worst outcome would be that you would tell me, well, I'm sorry, it feels like you don't have enough to say, or maybe it is not very suitable, or we are very busy, we cannot air this, blah, blah, right? But the way my body would be re responding, and, and everybody can relate to this in any area that they have been really anxious in, of, in, the normal, in this uh, uh, modern life. Your body and mind is reacting as if I'm going to be dead, as if I'm going to combat, as if something horrible is going, as if I'm going to wrestle a tiger. Right. Uh, so that could be the misfiring of the system that is not getting the normal uh, dose that it gets. And uh, that could be some reason why a lot of people engage in uh, any artificial form of fear, uh, be it... Uh, horror movies and scary movies or exciting at, at uh, in, uh, exercises or jump, uh, bungee jumping or, I mean, I, my own uh, personal experience was when um, I was afraid of heights and I could barely walk up the ladder to the attic. And uh, many years ago, someone, I had a week of vacation to burn in January and someone said, why don't you go to Grand Canyon? They have these awesome mule rides. And I never thought about the issue of height when I was doing this. Right. So I planned it and five, 6 a.m. in the morning, we are waiting for these mules and mules are very tall. Before that, I'd been on a, like an, on a horse or a donkey or a mule, maybe had one hour in my whole life. Right. Put us on these things, it's ice and they sometimes slip and they tend to walk on the edge. So I'm seeing a thousand feet <laughs> below my feet extreme fear it was of course it was exposure therapy and my i'm not afraid of heights anymore but the cool experience i had was that the next day when we came up and when i came back to the hotel the next few days i was not feeling anxiety and that the, uh, the whole about idea, anything or about heights anything. no about anything really. yeah like maybe this is because i had a good exercise of my fear secretary that i'm not afraid a lot but again this is a my own theory I, I, I don't have a lot of solid research data to prove this but human behavior seems that we need it otherwise we wouldn't be seeking it very interesting no because i've heard about exposure theory i used to be afraid to fly in an airplane and the only way to get over you you can't in my opinion you can't read a book about it or you can't watch a video about it and say okay here are the logical reasons why you should not be afraid to fly or statistically you're more likely to die you know walking across your bathroom floor but the only way to get over it is to fly, right? So, huh, I've now been on 500 flights in my life and knock on wood, none of them have crashed. So it's probably a pretty safe activity. But so that exposure, th but I, your point is kind of interesting because it is a tangent of exposure therapy, which is that if we don't have any fear in our lives, right? If we're not, if we're not exposed to any, any sort of fear-related stress, that doesn't seem natural. Yeah, and, uh, and the, the, the parallel I'll make to this to kind of support my point is that we need to work our musculoskeletal system, right? We need to. 
We know exercise is needed for us to be healthy. So that be why because that was a system which was you which in a normal human life would be used a lot. And if you don't use it, then you will uh, hurt. Same might apply really to to the fear uh, system that we are not using it in normal settings as much. And then it becomes all uh, symbolic and abstract anxieties that we have rather than real concrete anxiety or fear. Very interesting. Um, and when it comes to exposure, no, no, go ahead, go ahead. But, uh, no, I was just, I was going to change gears a little bit, but did you yeah. have one more thought on fear? Uh, it was about exposure therapy and how exercise itself could be exposure, but we, we may get there later on when we get to uh, the <laughs> Well, I want to switch gears a little bit because I've seen in some of your writing uh, that you've, you've written about dopamine and endorphins. And I um, feel as if I've read some articles recently where people say, oh, this runner's high thing, maybe it's not really endorphin and, and dopamine related after all. But, um, but it seems like most of the literature does say that is a real effect. I mean, going for a four mile run really does release endorphins and dopamine and those things make you feel better. Where, where, where do you come out on that? It's a stimulation and the stimulations do cause the, at least a, the, about the dopamine, I'm very sure. And, and the, research, uh, the, the research that I'm mentioning here is research from the animal studies that they look at the brain. Basically, the way they do it is that they create the activish activity, then expose, uh, then scan the brain or measure or uh, in the sad sequences of animal research, sometimes they decapitate the mouse and then look at the changes in the levels of different chemicals in the brain. And there seems to be changes in the levels of these neurotransmitters in the brain. Uh, although our field is moving more and more towards uh, an understanding of the circuits and pathways rather than neurotransmitters in general. And, and that's why, like, just saying that, okay, dopamine uh, went up in someone's brain because of whatever activity may not mean too much unless we look at the exact pathway it changed. Uh, for example, that I say, because these neurotransmitters are all over the brain. Increased mm -hmm. dopamine in part of brain could be very helpful in another part could be harmful. Increased mm -hmm. dopamine in part of the brain causes the reward circuitry to work and I will have a pleasant feeling in another part may increase the anxiety in another part may cause psychosis in another part may improve the physical uh, performance and preparedness. Interesting. But, well, but you there, is, there is research evidence that, that uh, these changes uh, can happen as an impact of exercise. Well, and I, I've seen you write in other, uh, you know, slight tangent, but that um, you know, nobody ever gets back. Well, 99% of people don't get back from a workout or a run and say, oh, I really regret doing that, right? No, for the most part, nobody ever regrets going out. And is that because of that dopamine endorphin effect, most likely? I would say there's a lot of things because even uh, because that even if that dopamine norepinephrine rise is temporary, temporary, but after like five days later, ten days later, you still would not have regretted what you did. <laughs> True. Part because and that's what I use anytime I uh, try need to really encourage myself. Let's say after a whole day of working, I'm a little bit tired and I don't want to do the workout or go to the gym then I tell myself, when was the last time you did it and you regretted it? And well, the thing is, there's a lot of aspects here. Besides the brain component, there's the fact that I feel accomplished. There's the fact, there's a boost to my uh, self-esteem. There's a feeling that, 
okay, now I did something for my body and I did something for my brain and now I might lose a little bit of more of that weight or my not, I, or I can me eat a little bit more or less or uh, I ran into that friend, I had a conversation, I got some, if I went out for a run, I got some sunlight, I got some fresh air, I listened mm-hmm. to birds, I saw my neighbors. I've had the patients who or, or like, I got a dog and now with my dog, things are going better. We went out for a dog and now myself and dog are happier. We went out for the kids and now kids are lighter and like it's more tired and they sleep better. They felt better. Right. I, ran, I had a patient who ran into her neighbor and they were dating and that she just found love. So <laughs> there are a lot of these different aspects. So it's hard. It's very like, I know we want to look at those like, like be simplistic and want to find one reason, but there are a ton of different reasons that surround this thing, which uh, like we, we did talk a lot about the brain itself, but we also know like we have clinical data on what they really do to anxiety and depression. Because yeah, it's cool to know what is happening in the brain, right? Because it always feels good to have a kind of a tangible objective change. But the other tangible objective change is what we know from the clinical data of what this does to behavior and emotions. Like, if my depression is less severe, if I'm less anxious, whatever causes it, I will take it. <laughs> right, right. Whether it's a change in my brain or whether it's a change in my body. And of course, any, any change in the feelings is yeah. the result of a change in the brain. Because we do not have feelings or emotions or thoughts without a change in the brain. Very cool. Yeah, and and we've um, the the sister publication of this podcast is a newsletter called Six Minute Mile, um, and we've we've been lucky to experience some great growth over the last two years, and we're over five hundred thousand subscribers now. And and people wow. say, well, how, how did you do that? And I and my flip answer is sort of that. Well, we're lucky we are, we're writing about an addictive behavior, right? This is like a, it's a daily compulsion. It's like, you know, the reason Starbucks is so successful is that people are addicted, you know, whether it's psychological or physiologically addicted to their caffeine fix every morning. So we're somewhat similar, but that's my flip answer as a, as a non-medical professional. But are these, is that, is that feedback loop you're describing of, of positive feedback um, and reward from exercise? It does that get to a compulsive or an addictive state, or is that going too far to describe it that way? I would say in some people it could, and some people who get to the point that without these activities they are hurting. Right. If they don't do that, they will be feel bad. They will feel bad about themselves. There might be difficulties with self-esteem. There could be difficulties with the mood and affect when they don't do it as regularly as an in, or or and as and intensely. Or sometimes there are body image issues that people push it too hard and continuously right. do that and get to the level of what we would call maybe an addiction. Does it fit the terminology that addiction science want uh, accepts or not? But I would look at it as, um, so let's say someone enters a very good rewarding relationship after having having been alone for a long time or having been in crappy, painful relationships. Now they don't want to be out of that relationship, right? Mm -hmm. Would we call that addiction or would we call that uh, being acquainted with normalcy? 
An example, a metaphor I could use is that, let's say if you have been sitting in a cigar bar for like five hours, now you do not even smell the cigars and cigarettes, the smoke, and you feel okay. But for a person who, if you step out of the cigar bar for, I don't know, two months and then go back there, you will feel terrible. Or if you haven't smoked for month and then go back to it it tastes like crap while this regular smoker doesn't feel that bad taste in their mouth so i think part could be becoming used to all and of course all these positivities that come out of exercise reward us they do impact and trigger the reward circuitry uh, whether it's uh, finding more energy, whether finding that I am more, more fit, uh, the self-esteem that comes with it, the reduced and negative emotions that come with it, all of these, or, and the social network that we create and the reward we get from other people, appraisal, every time people say, oh, you look fitter, oh, now you're running faster or more, and like all of these things are rewarding, but we don't want to confuse reward with addiction because, example, mm-hmm. Example, when I do something like some good physical activity and someone tells me, oh, now you're looking much better, it's a reward that makes me happy. Cocaine also works with my reward system. (laughs) But cocaine is very addictive and it trashes my reward system. So in that sense, I would say reward circuitry is involved in both uh, situations and anything that is rewarding, we want to continue. We want to follow it. you and you can ice cream everybody would like to eat ice cream because every time you eat it you have the reward of a good taste right 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 right. um so since you since you brought up illicit substances uh a legal substance alcohol so what is um so the other day i went for went for a run and it was hot and i got back and i thought you know what i'm really craving a cold beer so i I may, have, I may have wiped out all the mental benefits I just got from my nice run out in the woods with the dog by, by killing some brain cells with a, with a cold beer, but um, how, how dangerous or detrimental is alcohol? I mean, obviously within, you know, at the extremes, it's obviously very detrimental, but what, what, what do you tell your, your patients or friends or think about for your own life? How, how dangerous is alcohol or how detrimental is that to our mental well-being? It's hard for me to comment here because I'm not an addiction specialist. My specialty, I, want, I would rather stay within the realm of my specialty. But what I would say is that, of course, regular, regular use of alcohol we know is uh, damaging. It not only damages their liver and their cardiovascular system and, uh, and also the brain cells, as you mentioned. I don't know if that one beer you had damages brain cells or not. I don't know. Or if it does, does the damage really matter or not? I don't know that either. Um, I know the reality of life is that a lot of people do drink. And when I am dealing with those people as my patients, for instance, I might, well, I have to face the reality that I cannot tell the person to go live like a monk. So I would say, don't go beyond like a couple of drinks a week. I can, I can do this because when drinking becomes a, so I really believe in freedom. And by f- one aspect of freedom is a freedom of choice. If you get to a point that you don't have any other choice than drinking to get to where you want, to have the good feeling that you want to have, 
and which is the point of addiction right or like you can or there are things that negative things some dance to for, remember some dance to forget there are things that people want to forget that only alcohol helps well then that's not a good place to be and we have a lot of other safer ways of helping people with reducing those negative emotions and feelings but that one beer that you had after your run i would say cheers but again i'm not an addiction specialist um so all right well that's uh i was hoping you'd tell me don't do that and so i have a nice clear line so, but all right so maybe maybe a cold beer won't won't, won't kill all the progress i made in previous yeah, well, unfortunately, unfortunately that's about life life is not very simple and easy it's hard right. not everything special in human life not everything is a simple answer uh-huh. it would be easy for me to say hey as a doctor i would recommend to you that you should never drink but uh, I also see the reality. Yeah, if you never drank, I would be sure that nothing bad is going to happen to your brain cells or body cells. And you would be always healthier, maybe. But uh, I also understand the realities of life, that there are a lot of people who would want to drink once a week or once a month or one, a couple of times a month when they're hanging out with their friends. All right. Fair enough. And um, you've written about... Uh, thinking of with your with some of your patients that you will treat exercise as a prescription the same way you would think about a med. So you would say, okay, I want you, you know, perhaps you need to take this antidepressant med, take this pill every day, and I also want you to take an exercise pill. Um, and part of that, I was interested to see that it doesn't have to be a six mile run, or it doesn't have to be 10,000 steps every single day, right? Or, or an intense, high intensity workout at the boxing gym, but small bits, it sounds like from your recommendations can still help. So dancing for three minutes or, you know, taking a lap around the block before bed when you're just about to go, you know, to be a little bit lazy for the end of the day. But I don't know, how, how do those small bits of that prescription help? Yeah. So, so again, coming back to the practicality and reality of life, there are a lot of people for whom I cannot, especially those who have never worked out, I cannot convince them to go for a one hour run every uh, three times a week. I know if I want to push them for that, that will be setting up myself up for failure. As a lot of my colleagues, when I started doing this with my patients told me that, oh, nobody is going to listen to you. And now I know why nobody was going to listen, because if you set up something that you yourself cannot do a lot of times, uh, then of course, some people might politely tell you they did it and they did not, or they might have uh, like tell you that uh, it's impossible. So that's why I look at it as a grayscale. Any kind of activity is positive activity. Any kind of I always tell my patients, five sit-ups are better than no sit-ups. Mm-hmm. Two push-ups are better than no push-ups. Five squats are better than none. Ten minutes of walking is better than nothing. And especially for a lot of people, it is very hard to afford being able to find the time and the, and the motivation to do that because motivation is a real issue. I'm not there to just knock on the door and pull them out and say, okay, this is your running time. So in that sense, yes, it does help because uh, any dose of, when, if you believe a medication works, any dose of that medication might help with all these different aspects that we talked about helping the person. I don't know exactly what is the threshold of how many minutes of aerobics you should do for your BDNF level to pass the meaningful threshold of increase. But I know that any sort of activity causing a rise in the blood in the 
heart rate will basically be a natural exposure therapy to physical symptoms of anxiety. I know that that will help with the, the, just the circulation, improving the blood flow to the brain. I know these aspects. And then also working with the patients to choose, like, like examples. I've had people that I ask, oh, well, do you talk on the phone? They're like, yeah, 15, 20 minutes a day, I talk on the phone with my cousin and mother and this person and that person. I say, while you're talking, just walk. Sometimes yeah, when yeah, I do telemedicine yeah. and it is through uh, not video and it's through audio, I walk as I'm talking. That's something doable that someone can fit. As I said, as you mentioned, I don't know, dance with the TV ads, play with the kids, whatever ups the blood, uh, ups the heart rate, I accept it. And then also finding something that the person uses because what I love is not necessarily what mm -hmm. the other person may love. There have been other activities that I tried that I really dislike. I could not that I hate it. I couldn't convince myself. I found them boring. I found them uninteresting. I did a lot of things, right? right and right. then I found something that I loved. Now I have found also biking that I love. For each person, it's a different thing. And find and not being uh, brave enough to experiment with all these different activities and finding something. And of course, like there are places like my state. Uh, uh, weather changes a lot. They're like there are days in the winter that it's very hard to go outside. Right. So how can we find other activities which can complement the activities that I could do in the summer? So I think most of our listeners and readers are sold on the idea that that exercise yeah. helps, and they and most of them probably understand at least an innate level that exercise probably has a positive impact on the brain. Are there other little brain hacks that you like um, that so I, I remember years ago I was studying for a graduate school entrance exam and this, mm -hmm. this this particular exam had a lot of word problems you know train leave Chicago traveling 22 miles an hour and all and after doing those for a couple of weeks my brain felt different it felt a lot better I just felt like I could sort of see I could perceive problems and solutions a little bit better in my daily life but do you, do you, what are your, your nice hacks, do's and don'ts? So do you love crossword puzzles or Sudoku, but you absolutely hate watching garbage TV or, you know, or just hate, you know, using an iPhone while you're watching garbage TV what are the good and bad you can do for brain development in our everyday lives? You know, short of studying Shakespeare and, you know, working on physics problems in your spare time. <laughs> which we, we don't have a lot of research that shows it helps a lot uh, uh so uh, we so you guys all know about exercise and how it's good and then there's about what we eat right it's, again it's right. a labrador having full access to the uh, pantry so avoiding easy food easy food which is the easy carbs i'm sure you'll you probably have or will have someone talking about the nutrition so i don't have to get there Right. I mean, easy sugars are not good. I mean, we did talk about uh, 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 a little bit dose of maybe excitement or fear. We did talk about that. Sleep is very important. Mm. A normal level of sleep is very important in reducing anxiety and helping with depression and as well, uh, the basically memory, cognition, and performance as, and, and brain health and improving the different side, again, improving the hippocampal performance and function. And that one of the requirements of good sleep is uh, not um, being on those bright screens a couple hours before sleep. So there's this thing called sleep hygiene that a lot of us uh, do not follow. 
because back in time where we were evolving, this brain had the tradition of slowing down. The, the lights would be dimmed and there was not much of sunlight and everybody would cool down and we would sit around the dark room and like at, at the table and have the dinner and then you were sitting in the fire and next to the fireplace or so mom was telling stories and everybody would go gradual to bed. Now we are on 60 miles per hour of brain function with the TV, radio, emails, messages, Facebook. It basically, these are like training us to be, have an ADHD brain. Switching yeah, yeah, yeah. from one topic to a totally different topic on Instagram or Facebook in a matter of less than one second. So this brain is hyper-stimulated. Of course, it's hard to then tell, him, tell it, okay, in 10 minutes, go to sleep. So slowing down a couple of hours before sleep, of, of course, not caffeine in the late afternoon. One of the other things uh, when we are talking about garbage input uh, is in general, I always say our brain is a, like a dog. If you, feed your, if you don't feed your dog good food, it will find garbage and eat it and you will end up with a sick dog and diarrhea all over the place. Same applies to our brain. If you feed your brain garbage, what you get out of it is garbage. If you, keep, uh, if you watch cable news six hours a day, regardless of which one you watch, all you will learn is that the whole world is on fire and America is on the verge of collapse and everybody hates everybody and we should be really terrified. And how would you feel after that? I mean, I would be surprised if you would be laughing and smiling and very happy. So I really encourage people to reduce their exposure, especially in this uh, divisive culture of these days, limit their exposure to these a kind of a disaster pornography of the cable news. If you yeah, want to yeah, know yeah. the news, read the news, whatever you want, or just watch half hour of the news to get the gist of the news, then we don't have to listen to 20 people reciting the same thing over and over in different emotional tones for the rest of the day. If you want to watch something, again, you want a happy mind, you got to feed it happy things. You want to watch things, watch things which are calming, with songs, uh, watch things about nature, I don't know, cooking, about a uh, movie, there are a ton of good movies, documentaries that we can enjoy. Rather than getting into the sadomasochistic approach of, well, it's the same thing with the Twitter, like scrolling down the Twitter. And the thing is that these, I've written about this also before, that they gradually push us into different separate uh, tracks. Right, right, right. The algorithms on these, but depending yeah. on who you follow and who you add and who do you like, then you find yourself in one secluded tribe, which is policing you against other tribes. And that is like the creator environment of paranoia so if i would really encourage basically whatever that makes uh, pushes our close as close as possible to the activities where we were designed to do we were not designed to be watching mm. terrifying news five hours a day we were not designed to be <laughs> laying on a couch eating popcorn uh five hours a day i, I like that um no, look, and I think that's one of the, you know, there's, there's plenty wrong with sports in America and sports in the Western world, let's say, um, but it, it is a, it's a big unifier, right? It, it, is, it is, for a lot, of, a lot of people, it's one of the only times when you sort of cross religious barriers or you move out of your tribe, you cross racial barriers and, and you know, you get, you know, I see it with our kids' soccer teams, like, wow, this is pretty cool. There are you know, on an 18 person team, there are seven nationalities represented and, and different mm -hmm. races and religions and languages. And, you know, and then they may go back to their neighborhood where maybe things are not as, as integrated. But I, 
I don't know. I'm, a, you know, I look at the starting line for the the New York Marathon, and um, you know, that's about as diverse a crowd as you find in the world, right? There are people from all over the world, or people from all different socioeconomic groups in the U.S. And so, uh, and again, there there's some downsides to sports, right? But uh, people get a little bit too wrapped up in them sometimes. But but I do think it it is a overall. I think it's a bigger unifier than divider. That is a good part of tribalism. I mean, we are tribal creatures. The bad part of tribalism, we have been exposed to it too much. But the good part is, yeah, you have a, like a sports tribe that you feel affiliated with and you, have, you get excited and you may even have some bantering, bantering with the other tribes just for a playfulness. It's a kind of a sublimation, like little lions like us wrestling with each other without really killing each other. So... That's kind of a, like an exercising our social interactions and challenging each other behavior. Besides the fact, like at the my boxing gym, we have a group of friends who we have a, like an app and we like every time one of us wants to go to the gym, we message the other person and we encourage each other and we push each other, other to go. We have created basically a family. We call it like, I'm not going to name the brand of that company, whatever uh, family. We basically were... We have outings, we hang out together. In the tough times, we support each other. In the happy times, we encourage each other. So there are all these other important, cool aspects, whether these communities are online and with people I've never met, or people, it brings a sense of purpose, a sense of meaning, and a societal aspect, uh, because we are social creatures. I mean, although we are socially very divided these days, we are social creatures and we need it. So ex- sports and exercise, whether it's some sports that I follow or the exercise group that I'm a- affiliated with, are very, very good social functions. Uh, and which, of course, is, is good for mental health, right? To, be, to feel as if you're part of a higher cause and in a, in a bigger group, not just individual alone against the world. Yeah, very much. We do need, we as social animals, we really need social life. Yeah. We need a good social life and we need friends and we need, connect, we need connections. All right. Well, I, you've been such a good sport to put up with our, our uh, very, very base level questions here, but I've, I've taken two pages of notes here. This is, this is great stuff. We really appreciate it, Rush. I will hit you with a couple quick questions that we tried with a few of our other guests um, to, to tap into what's really behind um, the very large brain of yours. But uh, so um, at a more mundane level, what's your what's your favorite movie of all time? Uh, ah, damn it! It was on my uh, on my mind recently. I would. Can I pick two? Absolutely. I would say Mr. Nobody and Life Is Beautiful. Oh, I haven't seen Life. We have we have the kids watch Life Is Beautiful. We've never had. We have teenage kids who. Don't always appreciate every you know their day to day lives. That's it's sad. a very sad. Yeah, it's a very sad movie, but it's a very deep movie that I believe. Yeah, absolutely. All right, favorite book of all time. Oh, uh, you know I'm uh, I'm biased a little bit now. Uh, I mean, okay, now I'm biased a little bit now because my girlfriend is, has been reading a uh, Little Prince, and that was my favorite. Oh wow. <laughs> But I would say Rumi's poetry. Oh, good. Uh, this we are we've compiled a list of these, by the way, so, which we haven't we've we're about to publish. So these these are great ideas. No one has cited those yet. Love it. Um, if you could have dinner with one person, living or dead, who would it be? 
Ooh, living or dead, definitely would probably be a dead person. Uh, because you're already famous, so you, you get access to all of them. You know, you, you could call LeBron James and have dinner with him. And yeah, probably. Uh, unfortunately, wouldn't be from the sports world. That's good. That's better. Would be like you know what I had a, uh, when I was a I was a nerd when I was a kid. So I had three pictures on my wall. It was of Sherlock Holmes and Einstein and Gandhi. I would probably go for uh, Einstein. That <laughs> that would be great. Any of those three. Uh, I might pick Gandhi out of those three. That would be, wow. How do you, yeah. Uh, when you work out, do you like having headphones in or not? Do you like to have sort of clear mind focused on one thing, drown out outside influences? So I, yeah, so I do three kinds of workout. They're like a serious one, like three hour, two, three hours a week is the boxing where it's in the group setting. So a lot, I really get uh, energized and encouraged by the group environment and the trainer yelling at us. So I, there I don't. Uh, all right, last question for you. Who, who's, um, who's been the best mentor or teacher for you? That's again a very tough question. So one of my colleagues here who basically picked me up as a mentee himself probably 15, 16 years ago, Dr. Ali Reza Amir Sadri, that's his name. And he is the best mentor because this guy, like he's like a wizard. You talk to him, like I may talk to him for five minutes about you and he will tell me things about you that I didn't myself understand about you. And he, he, he has taught me more than that. He has taught me about how to care for others and about others and think about deeper issues than just uh, the number of papers I may be publishing or yeah. whatever academic success. Yeah. Oh, that's a good one. Well, we, we can't thank you enough. And, um, and thank you for all you're doing with, I mean, the, the research you've done is of great interest to our readership, but, I, but this is a whole, we could do another hour on, I'm, I'm fascinated by your work with, with refugees and, um, there, I mean, I'm sure there are 10 books worth of material in just your day-to-day -day interactions with these folks and what they've been through. And I don't, um, I knew my college roommate is from the Detroit area and he's told me that there are a lot of, I know he had told me there are a lot of Syrian refugees and I didn't realize there were a lot of Iraqi refugees, um, in Metro Detroit too. Um, but yeah, the, I mean, the, the, the stories and what they bring to, to this country and their experiences is just some amazing stuff. Sad, right? Partly, but, you know, also courage and hope and resilience. Yeah, and part is very positive in terms of what they bring and what they can dedicate and what they can contribute. And of course, resilience. We are yeah. learning it from them about resilience as well. I believe it. Well, thank you so much, Rash. This you are a great sport to put up with all these questions, and uh, and best of luck with with your continued research and clinical work. But I, I know our listeners will will love this version. Any anytime we get into the sort of the mental aspect of the game and the mental benefits, people really love this. So we will we'll be sure to send along any feedback we get from our listeners and readers. I'll appreciate that. Thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, it's our pleasure. Take care. Bye bye. Take care.